Well, if you've got a Bible with you this morning, I want to invite you to open it to John chapter 13. I should tell you there are new study guides available uh, at the Connect Desk in the lobby, or if you want one, you can just put your hand up and uh, one of the ushers will drop it off for you as we move into this next uh, section of the Gospel of John. Now, we're looking at a somewhat familiar story this morning, and we're going to jump right into it by reading John chapter 13, verses 1 to 17. Uh, This is God's word, and this is what it says to us. It says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing to you, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet, he put on his outer garments and resumed his place. He said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If then your Lord and teacher, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also do. Just as I have done to you, truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Well, as I said, this is a somewhat familiar passage. Jesus washed the feet of his disciples, but what does it mean? And I want to sort of set this up by telling you that back in 2003, I helped lead a short-term missions trip uh, with a group of young adults to Perm, Russia. If memory serves me correctly, it was a 17-day trip. And on the very final day of that trip, we were given one full day to explore the city of Moscow. And on the evening of that final day, we attended a performance of Swan Lake at the Bolshoi Theater, which is basically in the middle of Red Square. Now, Russian ballet is famous. Swan Lake was composed by Tchaikovsky. It's probably the most famous of all the Russian ballets. And I sat in that historic theater. I watched the dancers do their thing, and I basically got nothing out of it. I mean, part of it might have been that I dozed off a couple of times. Uh, but, But really, having... The, the, the dancing, the music, the lighting, everything was top-notch. But having never been to a ballet before, I understood almost nothing of what was taking place on the stage. I kind of gathered that this guy was in love with 
this girl, but they couldn't be together or something, and that she was in love with him, but was kind of sad because there was something preventing their, their love. And I don't know if you've ever been to a ballet before, but there's no dialogue. There's no explanation of what is taking place. There's no play-by-play or color commentary. It's not even like a musical where you can kind of piece things together by the words to the songs that they're singing. You're just sort of left to go, I don't know what that was. It turns out that the guy and the girl were sad because she was under a curse that made her turn into a swan each evening. I miss that, right? That's the swan part of Swan Lake. So I watched Swan Lake. I appreciated the talent, but I didn't understand it. And I think that same thing is true for lots of people with regard to John chapter 13. I mean, we kind of get it. Jesus, the teacher and leader of the disciples, reverses the order of things and washes the feet of his disciples. So people will make observations about humility, about servant leadership. The best leaders are the ones who are willing to serve those who are under them, that kind of thing. Someone preached a sermon on this passage and gave it the title, There are certain things that can only be fixed with a towel and a basin of water. Is that what John chapter 13 is about? Is it just sort of a moralistic lesson about serving others? Well, twice in this passage, Jesus tells his disciples that they don't understand what he is doing. And I wonder if many of us, having read this passage or heard this passage before, don't really understand the full significance of it. It is best to see John chapter 13 as an enacted parable. That is to say that Jesus' actions here, his laying aside of his garments, his taking up the attire and the actions of a servant, condescending to cleanse the feet of his disciples... And then taking up his position again at the head of the table, actually give us a visual representation of his mission. If we really want to understand John chapter 13, it's best to read it alongside Philippians chapter 2, where we read this, "...have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God..." did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That story is actually what's at the heart of John chapter 13. One writer summarized the gospel story like this, that he would leave his place on high and come for sinful man to die. That he would leave his place on high and come for sinful man to die. This is what John chapter 13 helps us understand. So we're going to walk through the passage now in more detail. And I'm simply going to highlight three truths for you. And the first one is 
that Jesus loves supremely. Uh, Verse 1 says this, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Uh, This is an amazing verse, and I think it's worth camping out here for a bit. I think we learn at least three things about love from what Jesus says and does here. And conveniently, those three things all start with the letter P. So we learn firstly about the priority of love. So all we need to notice there is just notice how it was that Jesus chose to spend his final week on earth. Now, if you knew that you had one week to live and you were in good health, what would you do? I mean, you you could throw yourself a pity party. You could bemoan the fact that you weren't given longer or more days. You could just throw yourself a party. I mean, why not go out with a bang? You could try to check off as many things on your bucket list as possible. I've always wanted to see X. I've always wanted to experience Y. Jesus knows that he will be handed over to the authorities and crucified within the week. But he chooses to spend that time with his disciples. And more specifically, he chooses to spend that time showing them just how much he loves them. This was the priority for Jesus. I think there's another way we see the priority of love here. Verse 1 again, having loved his own who were in the world. He loved them to the end. Now, we've been saying this for the last couple of weeks. But from John John chapter 12 onwards, we move from Jesus' public ministry with the crowds to his private ministry with his disciples. And one of the things of note in this section is the change in dominant words. So in John chapters uh, 1 to 12, we find the word light 31 times. Jesus is the light of the world. He's the light that dispels darkness. In those same chapters, we find the word life 50 times. In Jesus' life, he's come that we might have life. He's the resurrection and the life. The word love appears only six times in John Chapters 1 through 12. But in chapters 13 to 17, the word love appears 31 times. So it is true that God so loves the world, but there is a special relationship that Jesus has with his followers or with his own. He loved his own who were in the world. Now, when it says that, we might wonder, well, if that was just for the original 12 disciples... I mean, some of what Jesus does here is non-repeatable. None of us have ever had our feet physically washed by Jesus. But as you read through these chapters, it becomes clear that what Jesus says and does with and for his 12 disciples was intended to show his relationship with all future disciples as well. So in John chapter 17, Jesus prays for his disciples. And as part of that prayer, he says this, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me 
through their word, that they all may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, so that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus prayed for us in that prayer. In the same way, when it says that Jesus loved his own who were in the world, it also means that he loves his own who are in the world. I love this quote from John Calvin. He said, Though we think that we are at a distance from Christ, yet we ought to know that he is looking at us, for he loveth his own who are in the world. We have no reason to doubt that he still bears the same affection for us, which he retained here at the very moment of his death. Jesus, it's not just that he loved his own, he loves his own. So we learn something about the priority of love. We also learn about the permanence of love. What John tells us here is that he loved them to the end. So so what does that mean exactly? He loved them to the end. Is it just a chronological note telling us that he loved them until the end of his life? He loved them until he breathed his last breath. Well, I think that's part of it, but I think there's more. To love someone to the end carries with it the idea of permanence. It's an enduring kind of love. Now, unfortunately, this kind of love is in short supply today. William Bennett, who was a political advisor, uh, he served under both Ronald Reagan and George Bush, the first George Bush, and he tells the story of attending a wedding where the bride and groom committed to uphold their vows for as long as this love shall last. He said he sent paper plates as a wedding present. But, but it's not just romantic love that does not last at times. You can probably think of other relationships as well. Maybe you had a close friend during your high school or your college days. You were close. I mean, in today's vernacular, you were BFFs. You thought along the lines of the Michael W. Smith and Amy Grant song, Friends are Friends Forever. Amy Grant references two weeks in a row. I mean, and you thought we weren't on the cutting edge of relevance? Like, Now, you're older now, and you know that friends aren't always friends forever. Sometimes there's a falling out. Sometimes there's a betrayal. Sometimes there's just this sort of gradual drift apart. The love of Jesus is not like that. Jesus' love is not fickle. He loves us with an unfailing love. Listen to what the Apostle Paul said about the unfailing love of Jesus. He said, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. In Christ Jesus, our Lord. So you may have come here this morning with pain or scars because of a love that wasn't permanent. You might be dealing with a painful separation right now. Maybe that painful separation was caused because of death. But nothing 
can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Isn't it good to know that you are loved with that kind of love? So we learn about the priority love of love. We learn about the permanence of love. We also learn about the perfection of love. Now, the word that's translated end here is an interesting word. It's the Greek word telos. That word certainly means end, but it means more than that. So teleology or teleology is the explanation of something by pointing to its purpose or goal. And some translations try to capture the essence of that here in John 12 by translating it like this. Jesus loved them to the extreme. The 1984 version of the NIV translated this as, Now having loved his own who were in the world, Jesus showed them the full extent of his love. This is why I titled this point as Jesus loves supremely. So what does it mean to say that Jesus loves to the end or to the utmost, or that he now showed them the full extent of his love? Well, the answer to that question is spelled out or acted out in what Jesus does here. What does he do? Listen again to verses 3 to 5. Verse 2 says, During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. So there are no accidental or filler words here. Jesus knows who he is. He knows where he came from. He knows where he is going. And that makes his actions all the more significant. He has come from heaven. He has taken up the form of a servant And he has provided cleansing for sin and will return to his father. You want to know how much Jesus loves you? Jesus loves you that much. The New Testament is at pains to help us understand this. The Apostle Paul will say it like this. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Or elsewhere, John will say it like this. He'll say, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Jesus himself says it this way in Mark chapter 10, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is how much Jesus loves us. That he would leave his place on high and come for sinful man to die. We don't sing it a lot anymore, but I had a friend in college who came to understand the gospel by walking into a church for the first time and hearing the song, Lord, I lift your name on high. The chorus of that song says, you came from heaven to earth to show the way, from the earth 
to the cross, my debt to pay. From the cross to the grave, from the grave to the sky, Lord, I lift your name on high. And so we should. Jesus loves supremely. The ultimate demonstration of that love is found in his substitutionary death on our behalf. That's the gospel. Second thing we learn here is that Jesus cleanses completely. And we see this in verses 6 to 11 and the back and forth that Jesus has with Peter. Now, as an aside, let me just say that I love Peter. I mean, Peter is always stepping in it, right? He's so eager and zealous, but he's got that kind of foot-in-mouth disease. He's always saying things he will later regret. And so here in verse 6, Jesus comes to Peter to wash his feet. He says, He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And it, 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 it's there as a question, but it's not really a question. What he's really saying is, you shouldn't be washing my feet. And Peter was right in a sense. There are a few examples of foot washing in the Old Testament. And in every one of those examples, the superior has his feet washed by someone who's in an inferior position. Now, foot washing was a necessity in first century Israel, but it was a job for the lowest of servants. Actually, at this point in time, Jewish law stipulated that foot washing was beneath even Jewish servants. So for Jesus to do this was scandalous. But it's clear that Jesus intended more than just cleaning the disciples' feet. That's why he says, what I am doing now, or what I am doing, you do not understand now. But afterward, you will understand. But Peter still wasn't having it, right? He says, you shall never wash my feet. And then notice what Jesus says. If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. That seems a little harsh, doesn't it? I mean, did Peter's feet stink that bad? Is that what Jesus is saying? Look, your foot odor is really getting to me. I'm not hanging out with you until that's dealt with. Peter is still thinking on the physical level. He hears what Jesus says here, and so then he changes tack. Look at what he says in verse 9. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Right? Give me the full works here. And then Jesus corrects him in verse 10. Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. I think we can understand that on the physical level. The feet were the dirtiest part of the body, and they still can be. I remember a friend of mine telling me that when she was a teenager, uh, she used to wear shoes without socks in the summer. That wasn't bad enough. She used to keep her money in her shoes. And she went to pay for something at a store one time, and she pulled out all these, you know, wet bills and coins, and the guy behind the counter was like, ah, it's, it, it's okay, you're good, right? I mean, the feet can be filthy. That's now. This was first century Israel. 
The streets were filthy. You could take a bath, walk over to your friend's house and need a foot bath. But Jesus isn't talking about physical washing. Jesus isn't giving hygiene lessons. Jesus is teaching about cleansing from sin. He's saying, look, the one that he is cleansed doesn't need anything further. I wonder how often we're like Peter and we refuse or we misunderstand the cleansing that Jesus offers. Maybe it's because of pride. I don't need anyone to clean me. I can clean myself up. But if you are to have any part, any share in the inheritance of Jesus, you have to start with admitting that you need cleansing. Now, lots of people are reluctant to do that. It's been a couple of years now, but I remember reading with interest about the college admissions scandal involving wealthy parents who bribed officials to get their children into prestigious universities. There were some 33 people indicted for paying more than $25 million to have their children admitted to prestigious schools on the basis of something other than their academic merit. Two prominent actresses were at the forefront of that scandal. Felicity Huffman, a star in the TV show Desperate Housewives, and Lori Loughlin, a star from the show Full House. But what struck me as I followed that case a little bit was their different responses in the face of their guilt. Shortly after the charges came to light, Felicity Huffman issued this statement. She said, I am in full acceptance of my guilt and with deep regret and shame over what I have done. I accept full responsibility for my actions and will accept the consequences that stem from those actions. She continued, I'm ashamed of the pain I've caused my daughter, my family, my friends, my colleagues, and the educational community. I want to apologize to them. And especially, I want to apologize to the students who work hard every day to get into college and to the parents who make tremendous sacrifices to support their children and to do so honestly. Later, she wrote, My daughter knew absolutely nothing about my actions, and in my misguided and profoundly wrong way, I had betrayed her. This transgression toward her and the public, I will carry for the rest of my life. My desire to help my daughter is no excuse to break the law or engage in dishonesty. That is a full confession. And whatever you might think of her reasons or her motivation for making such a public confession, it was quite a contrast with the response of Lori Laughlin, who basically denied everything until the trial, and then finally entered a a guilty plea in the face of incontrovertible evidence. More than a year later. Look, if you want to have any share in Jesus, you have to admit you need him to cleanse you from your sin. That is the starting point. Now notice that I didn't say, if you want to have any share in Jesus, you have to clean yourself up first. John will go on to talk about this in, his, in, in the letter First John. And there he says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Jesus cleanses 
completely. That is good news. His death is the thing that purifies us from our sin. But understanding that Jesus cleanses completely doesn't mean that everyone is automatically made clean. The end of verses 10 and verse 11 are sobering. And those verses say, verse 10, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him, and that was why he said, Not all of you are clean. Well, these verses are a reference to Judas. We're going to look at Judas more closely next week. But what's scary about Judas is that he had exactly the same information as the rest of the disciples. He had the same experiences they did. He witnessed the same miracles they did. He listened to the same teaching from Jesus that they did. He too had his feet washed by Jesus. But his heart didn't belong to Jesus. As someone said, washed he may have been, but cleansed he was not. And that same profound tragedy is not only still possible today, but far too common. Proximity to Jesus is not the thing that saves us. Being born into a Christian family, having relationships with his followers, coming to church, will not make us Christians. Each person needs their own relationship with Jesus. Each person needs to start at that place of saying, cleanse me. I confess my sins to you. Third thing we see here is that Jesus commissions us to live sacrificially or to love sacrificially. If you've been around Crossridge for any length of time, you will have heard me say that we're not just saved from something, we are saved for something. Now, we are saved from something. We, the death of Jesus on our behalf means that we are saved from the wrath of God that would be due to us, the debt we would owe for our sin. But we're also saved for something. Because we've experienced the grace of God, we have a purpose that is much bigger than just living for the accumulation of stuff or living for our own pleasure. Verses 14 and 15 say this. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Jesus washed the disciples' feet, so we should wash one another's feet. Well, what exactly does that mean? Does that mean that we ought to physically wash one another's feet? We maybe should have put out a notice about this, but at the end of the service, we're going to do a different kind of altar call. Have you come forward, and Pastor Andy's going to be dressed in a loincloth. He's going to wash all your feet. Now, there is actually a tradition in some churches of doing this. Some churches do that exact thing on Maundy Thursday, the day before Good Friday. And I'm not discounting the kind of lessons that might be learned from that, whether you're the one doing the washing or you're the one having your feet washed. But I'm not sure that's exactly what Jesus was after here. Now, if the foot washing that Jesus did was somehow symbolic of salvation and cleansing from sin, does this mean that we can somehow do the same thing for others? 
Well, that's not it either. We can't save others no matter how much good we might do for them. So what does it mean to wash one another's feet and to do just as I have done to you? Well, I think this is where we get into the idea of acting in humility and sacrificial love. And this plays out in a hundred different contexts, or it ought to. One of the characteristics of love that's listed in 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, as we like to refer to it, is that love is not self-seeking. This is why husbands are called to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. It's a sacrificial love that we are called to. And that means maybe something as simple as deciding you'll be the one to get up at 3 a.m. and deal with a crying baby. Love is not self-seeking. What we see in John chapter 13 is a pattern for us to follow. John will later expand on that by saying this. He says, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? And then he says, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. No, it was by a commitment to this kind of self-denying, self-sacrificing love that the early church grew. In his book, The Triumph of Christianity, Rodney Stark describes it this way. To cities filled with homeless and the impoverished, Christianity offered charity as well as hope. To cities filled with newcomers and strangers, Christianity offered an immediate basis for attachments. To cities filled with orphans and widows, Christianity provided a new and expanded sense of family. To cities torn by violent ethnic strife, Christianity offered a new basis for social solidarity. And to cities faced with epidemics, fires, and earthquakes, Christianity offered effective nursing services. That is the kind of self-sacrificing love that we are called to. It's what the church has been built on. Now, I think we know that. I think we know we're called to this kind of love. Now, this is true in regards of lots of things, but I think a lot of us are a lot better at knowing this than doing this. Take a look at verse 17 again. Jesus says, If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Now, you won't pick this up in in most English translations, but there are actually two different words that are translated if in that verse. The first if is the first word of the passage, if you know these things. Now, we translate it as if, but it's really a statement of fact. We could and maybe should translate it as since, since you know these things. The second if is a different Greek word, it's a different construction, and it introduces a clause that is less certain. We could say it's conditional. We could paraphrase this verse like this, since you know these things to be true, and you do, you will be blessed if, and only if, you do them. So let me just go kind of prosperity preacher here on you for a minute, okay? Do you want to experience God's blessing? Do you want to have that hashtag blessed life? 
Do you? This verse gives us the formula. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. My prayer for all of you is that you will get in on that blessing. My prayer for our church is that we will be known for the kind of self-sacrificing love that that will be evident in our marriages. That it will be evident in the way we parent our kids. That it will be evident in our relationships with our neighbors and with our coworkers. That we will love them as we're called to do. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the good news of the gospel. We thank you that though we are unclean, you entered this world to deal with that, that Jesus left his throne in heaven, took up residence here, lived a perfect life, gave that life as a ransom for us and was resurrected into heaven. God, we pray that that would be the thing that transforms us, that we would live out of that new identity that we have in you. And that even as you say later in this chapter, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. God, would you help us to be that kind of church? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.